0: This is Pet Life Radio. Let's Talk Pets.
1: Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Yanong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. The lionfishes, known for their contrasting banded coloration and long venomous fin rays, are beautiful and popular marine aquarium inhabitants. So what happens when they leave their native Indo-Pacific range and become established in the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico? Join us as my guest Alex Fogg, lionfish expert and marine resource coordinator for Okaloosa County describes the negative impacts of this non-native species and ongoing efforts to study and control this invader. We'll be right back after these messages.
2: Michelle Fern here. I have the perfect gift for Mother's Day. You know, I can't visit my mother-in-law as much as I'd like to. And that's why I love the skylight frame. It's a touchscreen photo frame that you can email photos to and they appear in seconds. So my mother-in-law can see the pictures right away. And I have a great savings for you. Just go to skylightframe.com pet and you'll save $10. That's right. S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-F-R-A-M-E dot com slash pet, P-E-T, and you'll save $10. And get ready to receive sheer happiness thank yous from your recipient because they will love this.
1: Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Alex Fogg, the Marine Resource Coordinator for Okaloosa County, Florida, and a lionfish expert. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. So, Alex, I think we kind of discussed this. I like to ask kind of some personal questions, nothing too personal, but, you know, just to let everyone kind of get a, a little better sense of your background. Of course. So, so how, how did you first become interested in
0: fish? Well, Oh man, I was a brat growing up, so I've always been around the water. Uh, The majority of my family live down in the Florida area, even though I grew up uh, up in the north mostly. So we'd travel down to Florida pretty often and and do a bunch of fishing, do a bunch of snorkeling, and and that's what really really got me interested in uh, marine life. So uh, how old were you about? Oh, gosh. When I first started, well, I guess as long as I can remember, so maybe five years old, six years old, I think, is as, as early as I remember going down to Florida. Okay. And when did
1: you start keeping fish, or did you keep fish?
0: I did keep fish, but honestly, I couldn't even tell you what I had in my aquarium, and it was all fish water. I think you know, Tetra, I think they were, whatever you could get at Walmart up in Maine or, or Maryland. But yeah, just a bunch of freshwater stuff. maybe beta as well. Okay. So now you attended the University
1: of South Carolina for your undergraduate degree, and you started working in fisheries after. Can you tell us
0: yep. a little bit about that period? I knew I wanted to go into something relating to marine sciences, given that, you know, that was all I could do in my free time was go play on the water. So I might as well choose a career that would keep me around the world. So I went to University of South Carolina for marine science, had a good program there. Spent five years there, took a little extra time to uh, to enjoy the college experience, if you will. Uh, then meander my way down to the Mississippi Gulf Coast right around the same time as the oil spill happened. While the oil spill was a very bad thing to happen to the Gulf of Mexico ecosystem, uh, it was a good thing for a lot of job opportunities popping up along the Gulf Coast. So then
1: I guess what led you to your master's degree? You got a master's at USM, University of Southern Mississippi?
0: Yep. Yeah, that's correct. So I found working for NOAA right after the oil spill and that BP money slowed to dry up. They gave me the opportunity there to kind of my own project. And that was right as lionfish were starting to enter the Gulf of Mexico, 2010, 2011, reached out to some divers, started getting a whole bunch of lionfish to look at their life history, age, growth, reproduction, diet, etc. And from there, uh, I was encouraged to apply to grad school, specifically at uh, University of Southern Mississippi it was right in the street from where I was working at NOAA, uh, I got in with my major professor, Dr. Mark Peterson, and uh, it really just from there. So, uh, and I know, obviously, you're uh,
1: pretty involved with all sorts of different aspects of the marine environment. Um, before we kind of talk more about lionfish, can you maybe talk about some of the other projects that you have been involved with, you
0: know, from, you know, undergrad, grad, and and currently? Yeah, so undergrad, I really wasn't involved in too much research or anything besides going to class and, and uh, maybe going to the beach a little too often. But, when I, uh, when I got to, to NOAA, that's where I really took on a, a number of cool products, uh, specifically with history on all sorts of different species of fish. And that's what kind of allowed me to to move into lionfish. Really, it, it was all kind of geared around lionfish until I moved over to Florida, started working with university, uh, Florida Fish and Wildlife. I uh, started doing a lot of artificial reef work specifically uh, managing a whole chunk of money that was provided to the different counties across the Florida panhandle to create new artificial reef habitat as a result of the BP oil spill to replace that lost recreation that they had uh, and following the, the BP oil spill. So artificial reefs definitely became a big part of, of my career. And that's what I've kind of carried over to here at Okaloosa County, Dustin Fort Walton Beach, a lot of lionfish stuff, a lot of artificial reef stuff, fish aggregating devices, which are these buoys essentially that we're deploying 60 to 80 miles offshore to attract a lot of the pelagic species of fish, which is a very novel, very unique uh, project for the continental United States. This will be the first network of its kind. Uh, also a lot of beach ration work, um, some dredge work, maintaining our, uh, our pass here in Destin. A um, little bit of airing. Uh, can you go back,
1: can you go back to the, uh, the fish aggregation
0: kind of work? Yep. So how do, how do those things work and what do they look like? There's nothing fancy with it. There's no sound. There's no bait or anything. It's essentially just a buoy that's deployed, uh you know, 60 to 80 miles offshore, and it's really the only feature that's going to be out there. So it will attract, right, a lot of different species of fish. You know, your small fish, and then you bigger fish, and then you get your bigger fish. But right now, our entire charter industry is really having to run their boats from Destin all the way over to Mississippi and Louisiana to access. The oil rigs, where a lot of these pelagic species of fish are aggregating around, so we're deploying these buoys to kind of keep these charter the charter industry from having to go as far to access those fish. Okay, great. And there'll be plenty of research uh, surrounding those as well. You know, playing with some of the larger pelagic species, satellite tagging, acoustic tagging,
1: and um, yeah, I guess just to
0: mention some of those species, they would include your marlins, your billfish, tunas, wahoo. Those are the the main players. Okay, great. The big guys. Yeah, the big ones.
1: So um, let's get into lionfish a little bit. Okay. Now, I, I assume you have a kind of a, a love-hate relationship with lionfish. It's I do. Now, I do. probably one of the most studied invasive fish species. Uh, definitely, uh, as far as I'm aware, one of the main ones, You know, obviously, in the Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean. So I guess going back a little bit, how, how did you get involved with lionfish specifically?
0: Well, so I started my, I guess, heavy diving career um, when I was uh, at... University of South Carolina, doing a lot of diving out of Charleston. When I was there, lionfish were really starting to show up off the Carolinas. And we were asked on numerous dives to collect lionfish for uh, Department of Natural Resources there. So we were providing lionfish here and there. And it was you know, something I was very aware of, you know, doing it for class presentations and stuff in undergrad. But then when I got to the Gulf of Mexico, they really weren't there yet, or they were showing up. I started reaching out to some folks to see if anyone was doing anything with them in the Gulf of Mexico. They weren't. So I started reaching out to all sorts of different dive clubs and uh, different tournaments and really any diver that, that would answer my phone call to see if they could help me collect lionfish for this work. So I met a whole lot of really, really cool people um, to, to help with this project and it ended up being very successful.
1: So I know there's quite a bit to, to uh, the whole group. Let's start with some of the basics of lionfish. Can you tell us a little bit about their, I guess, natural or native life history and you know where they actually come from?
0: So lionfish are native to the Indo-Pacific. There's actually two species. Um, You have one, Taroes volatans, which is more your Pacific species. And then you have Taroes miles, which you find in the Indian Ocean. As a lot of people probably most familiar with lionfish in an aquarium, that's really how they got here. They survived being captured over there in their native range, brought here to the United States, put in a pet shop, survived someone picking them up and bringing them to their personal aquarium or a, a larger aquarium. And then they survived likely being bumped into the water where uh, they were able to find a mate and make lots and lots of little lionfish babies. So it's a pretty, pretty amazing transition from the Indo-Pacific to over here. But in the Indo-Pacific, they're meant to be there. They're in a system with, you know, hundreds, thousands of different species of fish. They have their place in the food web. Um, Over here in the United States or the greater Caribbean, Atlantic Ocean, where they aren't from, they have still not found exactly where they're going to be in that food web yet. And they're causing some pretty significant impacts as a lot of different papers will tell you.
1: So in, I guess in the Indo-Pacific, and this is kind of a question for me, even like what, how would you describe their, the food web and their kind of relationship with other species there? And I guess what are maybe some things that are maybe controlling them a little bit more there?
0: There's, You know, so much research that's been done here in their invaded range, there's very, very little that's been done over there in their native range. Uh, A lot of the papers dating back to the 1970s with a lot of drawings and very basic descriptions of the species. There's a lot of theories about what's keeping them in control in their native range, likely some kind of parasite or maybe a disease, maybe some predation, maybe some other mechanisms uh, that happen in the eggs. We also have to think that the genetics over there maybe aren't as superior as they are here. The ones that we have here in their invaded range are ones that were able to survive so many different challenges and uh, resulted in just an insane increase in the number of fish. Whether it be them being able to survive a more significant thermal regime or much wider thermal regime, you know, maybe uh, the ability to survive without eating for a longer period of time, uh, there, there's a lot of a lot of things here in their invaded range that certainly makes them superior to what maybe is happening over there in, in the different range.
1: Okay, and I guess just to clarify for everybody else, you, you mentioned two, and these are the kind of the complex that are here. There's other species of lionfish, of course, right? In in the yes, there are.
0: Yeah, there's there's dozens of different species of lionfish, but the two species species that we have here, next to the common names are red lionfish and devil firefish. They're very, very similar looking. So you really can't tell the difference here in their invaded range. There's too much overlap in the number of spines and whatnot. Uh, but the vast majority, according to genetics, are your red lionfish, or your Tarois uh, bulletins.
1: Okay. Great. Now, uh, now I'm going to ask you to kind of give us a little history lessons. Can you uh, sort of give us a a play by play of how the um, bulletins and the Miles came over from the uh, Indo Pacific into our area?
0: Okay. So, like like I mentioned, um, it was likely through the aquarium trade. They looked very very pretty in people's aquariums. Uh, they either got sick of them being in their aquarium and eating all their fish, or they were getting Sick of having an aquarium and just need to get rid of them. Likely dumped them into the waterway behind their house. Um, And the first one detected in the wild was in the mid-1980s off Southeast Florida. From there, they kind of floundered around a few sightings here and there. But it wasn't until the early 2000s that we started to see this explosion up the eastern seaboard, over to Bermuda, down throughout the Bahamas, the Caribbean northern south america up the yucatan and into the gulf of mexico and the gulf of mexico is the last place that they invaded and that was in 2010 2011 but now in the northern gulf of mexico we actually have densities that are much greater than anywhere else in their invaded range um, you can go out to a site you know the size of your kitchen table and could see you know two 300 lionfish on it that's changed and we'll talk about that in a little bit but the, the numbers that we saw uh, when they really first started to invade the northern Gulf of Mexico, were were incredible. And the same was said for a lot of the other uh, invaded parts of their their range.
1: And I, I know this is still probably a lot of theory and hypotheses, but what kind of is your feeling for sort of how it moved around? Do you, I mean, was it currents or what, what sort of drove that? Yep,
0: absolutely. It was, it was most likely currents. Actually, it definitely was current. So lionfish are broadcast spawners. They spawn this gelatinous mass of eggs that floats up into the water column. And those eggs aren't going to be swimming around. They're going to go wherever the currents are pushing them. So if you look at the map or the progression map of lionfish first popping up in the mid-1980s and then where they were in the 2000s, this progression up the eastern seaboard, likely from the, the Gulf Stream, and then over into Bermuda, probably for some eddies, and then into the, bah- the northern Bahamas and spreading down with those Caribbean currents. There's some literature out there that suggests that maybe hurricanes actually helped with the dispersal of this fish, um, especially against the currents or over making the crossing over to uh, over to the Bahamas. So yeah, definitely the currents are what certainly contributed to their spread.
1: Okay. And then um, uh, we're going to take a break in a couple minutes, but before we do, I, I wanted to touch base with you on a couple terms, because I know there's a lot of confusion uh-huh. in terminology with what we're talking about. So can you explain non-native, invasive, and, and some of the other kind of related terms when we talk about animals or fish that are in areas that they shouldn't be or, or aren't native to? Yeah.
0: So those two terms that you mentioned, non-native and invasive, those are probably the two most common terms when referring to lionfish. And lionfish are actually both of those. Non-native, though, is more of just specific to a fish that's not from here or an animal that's not from the, the area that it's invaded. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's causing impact. Invasive means it's causing impact to the ecosystem or to the other inhabitants of that system.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, because I know a lot of, a lot of folks will use the terms interchangeably and maybe yeah. not correctly all the time, so.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some new species of fish that are kind of showing up in the Gulf of Mexico. And right now they're considered non-native. We don't necessarily know if they're going to ever make it to the invasive classification, but certainly non-native for right now.
1: Can you yeah, maybe mention those? I'm kind of aware, I think, of one, but um, can you maybe mention which ones you're talking about?
0: I'm really just specifically referring to one, and it's uh, the Regal Damselfish. It's something that started showing up on pretty much every dive site that we have up here in the northern Gulf of Mexico over the last year. Um, it's a very small blue damselfish, fish. Um, you know, eat basically a plankton eater. Uh, so it's really not going to have the same sort of impact as lionfish do, where they're directly preying on a lot of the, a lot of the native species. But they potentially may displace some of the other native damselfish uh, competing for space, but it's something we're going to monitor over the coming years and see if they're actually even able to survive over the winter here. So that's the research side of things, but we'll see how it progresses.
1: Okay, great. Well, let's um, take a break and we'll continue our discussion with lionfish expert and marine resource coordinator for Okaloosa County, Alex Fogg, after these messages from our sponsors.
2: I have two dogs, Sam and Bailey. Both are golden retrievers. Poor Sam. He was a mess. Always itching. His paws were soaking wet all day from just constant licking. He had bald spots on his back. I just don't like putting shots and steroids into your dog all the time. D-I-N-O-V-I-T-E dot com. Dynovite is nutrition. Probably two weeks after he started Dynavite, I started seeing...
0: You won't believe how happy your dog will
1: be. I get
2: my Dinovite from Dinovite.com dot com.
1: Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets on Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLiferadio.com. We're back. And continuing our conversation with my guest and lionfish expert, Alex Fogg. Thanks, Roy. Yeah, no problem. So um, again, thanks for all the kind of basic background info. Let's talk a little bit more specifics now. When you were defining for the listeners are uh, non-native and invasive, you mentioned uh, invasive being much more harmful. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of the uh, lionfish invasion issues are and and what sorts of damage it's been doing?
0: Sure. So again, lionfish are non-native, which means they aren't from the area that they've invaded, but they're also invasive, meaning that they cause impacts to the system that they've invaded. And when I say impacts, I mean, they're preying directly on our commercially and recreational and ecologically important species of fish. So those fish that people like to go out and fish for, those fish that people like to eat at the restaurant, those fish that keep the reefs clean, that is certainly not a good thing. But Lionfish are also competing directly with those species. So lionfish are eating the same things that your red snapper may be eating, or your grouper may be eating, or some of those other important species of fish. So I think that's probably the, the biggest impact that they're having to the system. There have been a lot of different studies that have showed what sort of impacts those are and how the system has changed as a result of that. We've seen declines uh, upwards of 90% on some different reefs of certain reefs fish species. Um, and we've also also seen uh, just flat out displacement of a lot of those commercially and recreationally important species of fish like your red snapper and grouper. but it's it's hard to to say if if lionfish is the primary contributor to that. There's a lot of other stressors out there, man, oil spills, red tide. But lionfish certainly are not a good thing for for those native species.
1: So obviously they're they're bad. And I know you've been really, really involved with a lot of a lot of different aspects of it, including control. So, what are different ways that people are trying to control lionfish in in our area?
0: You mentioned earlier, you know, that this love-hate relationship that I may have with lionfish, and that's 100% true. So, the the hate side of it is you you hate to see a species that's in the system affecting fish that we like to go out and target for fishing, you know, spearfishing, diving, taking photos of, but on the other side of the, the coin, the love side of it is it's fun. It doesn't matter what sort of regulations are out there for you know your red snapper and grouper. You, know, you may only be able to get them one month out of the year and they have to have a certain size limit and you're only allowed to keep one or two. The lionfish, you can go out and shoot as many as you want and you can fill your cooler up and have a, a heck of a fish fry. It's a lot of filleting, but it really is a, a fun activity to go out to shoot a lot of lionfish. Now, some of the mechanisms that Are used to remove lionfish are, well, I guess the most efficient method of removing lionfish is a diver with a spear going diving uh, specifically scuba diving in that hundred foot range is where you're going to find the most lionfish. There's a lot of containment units out there that provide a, a safe way for folks to be able to shoot the lionfish and then store the lionfish for the duration of your dive before going back to the boat. Uh, specifically, those units are called zookeepers. The gentleman who makes them will, will hate them from coming in contact with you as the diver. There's also folks that are working on uh, different innovative collection technologies, whether it be an ROV armed with spears or electricity, as well as lionfish specific traps. Um, those are still a uh, pretty far ways out. And in the meantime, I, I encourage folks to to get scuba certified or pick up a spear and go hunt some of these.
1: Now, when you say, uh, I guess, um, shooting, you mean more, obviously, than just someone throwing a spear, right? How, how do uh, those, those things actually work?
0: It's, well, it's actually a very basic weapon. Um, I'm not talking large, expensive spear guns. I'm, I'm literally referring to a stick with a few points and barbs on it. That has a rubber band on it that's not much bigger than a regular rubber band that you can get at a office supply store you i'm trying to describe it you you pull the band back and hold it in your hand and then you can approach the fish and release the band and that causes the the spear to impact the fish and you put it into your zookeeper and you move on to the next one and in some cases you don't even need to use the band you can stab them just like you would be picking up trash at the park
1: (laughs) now I guess in terms of numbers, you know, it's it. I know that obviously the concern is kind of the numbers. Can you give us an idea of numbers that are out there and how much impact does, you know, just collection in this manner, you know, make? What, what's the, I guess, outcome of
0: all this? Well, diving right now, again, is the most efficient method to remove lionfish. But the problem is... You're really limited on the amount of time that you can spend on the bottom, whether it be the amount of air that you have in your tank that's on your back or the amount of time that you're allowed to spend on the bottom before you have to come up or run the risk of getting the bends or some other dive related injury. And then you know the next issue is having enough room on the boat to store all the lionfish. I mean, most people are going out on their you know twenty-five foot center console for a day diving. There's only so many lionfish you can fit on that boat, maybe a few hundred pounds. And the whole scheme of things, a few hundred pounds of fish is nothing when you have your longliners or other commercial operations that are going out and collecting thousands of pounds of snapper and grouper every single trip. So when you put it in the perspective of you know other commercial fisheries, it's it's very very little.
1: And now I know I think you. Um... Just had a, an event that was rescheduled, right? Can you talk yeah, about how more or uh, organize these events?
0: Yeah, huge bummer. So talking about divers being the most effective method to remove lionfish. Well, as opposed to having a bunch of disorganized divers going out whenever they want to hunt lionfish, wherever they want, lionfish derbies or lionfish harvesting tournaments popped up, uh, I guess, maybe in the mid 2000s as a method to, to harvest a bunch of lionfish. These Events have really grown. And uh, recently, the, I guess, largest lionfish event, the Emerald Coast Open, held up here in Destin, Florida, had almost 200 participants and removed more than 14,000 lionfish in just a couple days of harvesting. That was last year's event, uh, May 2019. We were scheduled to have the second annual Emerald Coast Open this May. But as you mentioned, we had to reschedule to September. And I I really hope things are (laughs) <laughs> Cleared up by then and we can have that event. Um, but there's a lot of studies out there that show that these sort of mass removals of lionfish really do help the ecosystem from where those lionfish are being removed. In the whole scheme of things, there's still thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of lionfish out there. But on a local level, those systems have certainly uh, have been helped by these large events.
1: Well, that's good. Yeah, and I, and I do hope that kind of goes through. It sounded like uh, sounded like a lot of fun, and I know at some point, hopefully, uh, I talked about planning the meeting up
0: in Destin, and <laughs> maybe yeah, yeah, you see. need to come on up here. It's a good <laughs> time here to to have it too. And I think September is generally better weather, anyways. So maybe <laughs> it's a, a good thing that we rescheduled till then. So now,
1: some people may have heard, and I know it was in the news maybe a month or two ago, um, and and before that as well. This issue about an ulcerative disease in uh, lionfish in our area. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and and uh, sort of what it means or what, if it's had any potential effect? I know there's a lot of science still going on with with that disease.
0: Yeah, that's certainly the the hot topic right now with lionfish. I mean, we've, there's been so much research on their life history and what sort of impacts they're having to the system, but a very uh, novel invasion. And, you know, with some of the ulcers that we started seeing, it's, it's certainly a, a point of research now. It was, I guess, fall, late summer, fall 2017. A good friend of mine and fellow diver, Josh Livingston, with Dreadnought Charters, we were out there harvesting a bunch of lionfish for some population monitoring that we were doing and came across a whole bunch of lionfish with these nasty ulcers on the side of them. He saw them first and came up and mentioned them, and I kind of dismissed it. Then it was my turn to go down, and I saw a bunch of them, and it ended up affecting about half of our catch. We were like, man, what is going on here? And, you know, subsequent trips, the same story was there. There were a bunch of lionfish with these ulcers. It spurred a whole bunch of research to try and figure out what it is. And I don't think we figured out what it is yet, but we've seen some very noticeable declines in the population. We suspect it was a result of whatever's causing these ulcers, but we haven't been able to pinpoint what it is. So we can't say for sure, but we've seen declines of, you know, more than 50% of the commercial harvest. We've seen reef sites that used to have let's say 200 lionfish on it have around 20 or 30 lionfish on it so you know what we used to be able to do is go out get enough lionfish to fill all of our coolers in just a few dives and be back before lunch now we have to dive hard all day long to get enough lionfish to be able to supply the commercial market and there's there's a thirst for lionfish in the market so we just can't get enough of them
1: so that's kind of probably another love hate thing this disease that may seem to reduce their numbers but obviously harvest for restaurants or whatever was was another big incentive for people to collect them right
0: it is yeah we didn't we didn't mention that we talked about the derbies but you know the commercial market has has provided a i guess a the market equivalent of a bounty folks can go out and harvest lots and lots of lionfish and as opposed to the state or someone giving them a dollar a pound or 2 dollar a pound they can bring them to market and be paid 550 650 a pound it took a long time for the restaurants to catch on but once they realized the economic value as well as the ecological value of harvesting all these lionfish and doing their part to get them on the menu you know we get calls all the time for people wanting lionfish and the problem is we can't get enough of them now so i guess it's a good problem to have and they obviously taste good, right? So yeah, yeah. This is this isn't like other invasive species where you have to season it or or do you know crazy manipulations to it to make it edible. Lionfish you can prepare any way you want. It's kind of like the Bubba Gump of fish. You can you know blind it, fry it, grill it, whatever. It, it's all good. It's all good. And everyone asks me to compare it to their you know to a fish. I just ask what their favorite fish is, and I say it's better than that. <laughs> nice.
1: So now I know part of your your job or part of your interest is in education, um, direct and indirect. So what are you and your colleagues doing to help kind of educate the general public and also uh, any of the stakeholders being impacted by these?
0: Yeah, outreach, outreach and education is extremely important with this. You know, I, I always think that everyone knows about lionfish, but every time I go somewhere and I, you know, talk to people about what I do, it's amazing how many people have heard of lionfish and they refer to a movie like Deuce Bigelow or something, or say they saw one in a, a dentist's <laughs> yeah. office, but they don't know that they're, you know, all over the place uh, throughout the Gulf and the Atlantic and in the impacts that they're having. So, you know, just having these conversations with folks at different events and Telling them the potential impacts and encouraging them to order order them at restaurants is is huge. But then there's also you know, specific events like the the big lionfish event uh, that we have in May up here in Destin, partnering with Florida Fish and Wildlife and their lionfish team. Um, they help put on this this massive festival that's really centered around ocean conservation or marine conservation, and you know what's being done to combat this invasive species. Traveling to different classrooms, high schools, middle schools, going to different marine science stations and talking to their members about lionfish, providing free samples of lionfish to these folks to let them taste them. While I ramble on about the ins and outs of lionfish, I don't think they really listen too much. They're just there for the. lot of the lionfish sample, but those sort of events slowly but surely will educate people about, about these fish and what they can do, whether they're a diver or not, to to help the situation.
1: So I'm kind of curious, do you have any good grade school stories when you uh, have gone to do some education over there?
0: Oh, man. So. Yeah. Uh, The most recent one, actually, I won't say where it was, but I was asked to come and talk to a group of high schoolers about lionfish. And I worked with a, a local restaurant to have their chef come in and prepare lionfish for them. Had a live lionfish in an aquarium so that people could come see how pretty they were and then, you know, taste lionfish and have me ramble on again about the problems with lionfish. One of the students decided that it would be a good idea to feed lionfish to the lionfish. And believe it or not, Lionfish ate the Lionfish and loved it. So even <laughs> Lionfish like the Lionfish. What did the students say? He thought it was funny. I don't think he uh, liked the outcome <laughs> with the, you know, getting in trouble by the teacher. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it was it was good. <laughs> That's funny. So
1: you've been working with them, obviously, and in your position for a long time in, in the Gulf. What's your kind of prediction for the outcome? Or do you have any thoughts on on the whole situation with Lionfish?
0: Oh man, that's a tough question. All in all, lionfish aren't going anywhere. They really aren't. Uh, they're here to stay. Even if we were to remove every single one of them, except for two, you know, the whole the whole problem could potentially come right back to where it was a few years ago. This decline that we've seen, you know, we've recently done a, a bunch of uh, research at, you know, what other invasive species, what happens with them when they see these declines? And often cases, you see this pulse again, you see this increase in the number of invasive species, and then you see another crash. So it's this, this classic invasive ecology of this boom and bust. I'm predicting that we're probably going to see another boom. It may not be up to those numbers that we saw, you know, a couple of years ago prior to this disease, but it's it's very likely that we're going to see more than what we're seeing right now. So it'll be interesting to to continue to monitor this invasion as the time goes on.
1: Now, I know this has been a question. We've been asked a little bit. I'm sure you guys have probably been asked maybe to address, you know, with these ulcers, are you thinking that they could spread to other native species or you know obviously we don't know what's causing it or do you, have you seen any other native species that have been in close proximity that may have
0: something similar so this disease is certainly a little outside my my wheelhouse i know a lot about lionfish i know a lot about the biology of a lot of different species of fish but when it comes to this disease and you know what what sort of issues it may cause to some of the native species i i just don't know i've seen ulcers on other species of fish but, you know, I've, I've seen that well before lionfish were even here. So whether it's, you know, ulcers that are similar to what lionfish are experiencing, or if it's maybe the same thing, but the native species are able to deal with it because it's been in the system for well before lionfish got here. I don't know. I, I guess you can compare it to the War of the Worlds. The, the aliens came and were wreaking a bunch of havoc. And then all of a sudden, something natural in the system, whether it be an amoeba or the common cold, ended up killing them all off. So again, something that's very common in the system, we may be overlooking as what's really causing this decline. But I think you can probably speak a little bit more to the, yeah. the disease itself.
1: Well, I was just curious if you you guys had, because I, I think we'd asked you before, and yeah, for uh, everybody, you know, I've, I've been working with Alex and a couple others on the disease part of it, but you, you haven't seen any other groups of fish, you know, kind of in the same sort of, to the same sort of level with any weird, you know, ulcers oh, no. or anything no,
0: No, I've not, no not native species, now.
1: Okay. Well, that's, and that's a plus, I think.
0: Yeah, I guess. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny nature has a way to bring things out.
1: Yeah, exactly. So do you have any uh, kind of lessons learned and, and you want to sort of give any um, soapboxes about things folks can do to try to help reduce or uh, avoid any type of invasion or, or anything um, kind of along that line?
0: Well, you know, taking some messaging from Florida Fish and Wildlife, if you have a, an exotic pet or something that's not around here, don't just release it. If, if you're sick of it or you don't you don't want it anymore, there's plenty of options for you to be able to uh, turn those animals into or or allow folks to adopt them. And you can find more information about that at Florida Fish and Wildlife. We prevent other issues like the lionfish from happening both on land and and in the water because as we've seen with lionfish, especially the the impacts can be quite severe.
1: Well, it's great. Thanks very much for that. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. I want to. Thank my guest, Alex Fogg, and our producer, Mark Winter, for making this show possible. Alex, do you have any kind of final words of wisdom? I know you are quite a wise Yoda-type person, so anything you want to end this uh, interview with?
0: That's the time I've been called Yoda, so I'll take it. But, you know, every time I, I do a podcast or you know, I do a speech or anything like that, I I always end or start the talk with the phrase lionfish are bad. I've said that ever since the beginning, but as we kind of alluded to in this podcast, maybe there's some good, you know, whether it be the commercial value or or some of the cool events and the people that have been met over the years. So lionfish are bad, but not that bad. <laughs>
1: That's a good ending. Well, thanks again for joining us, Alex. Really appreciate you taking the time and, and uh maybe that's I shouldn't say this. For specific <laughs> reasons that you are kind of uh landbound for now, we, we were able to kind of get a hold of you. So I appreciate yep. that.
0: Yep. Thanks. I'm glad we were finally able to make it happen. It's been like a year in the making.
1: (laughs) Thanks a lot. So uh, if anyone has any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, feel free to email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Again, really thanks to Alex and to Mark. Until next time, please visit your local aquarium stores, keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy, and definitely don't introduce any aquarium or other species into the wild that don't belong there.